Hey church, good to be with you again. This book right here has a zillion scriptures in it about singing. Uh, we are directed to do it as a church. It's one of the three things that we are supposed to do when we get together. And I have heard a, a bunch of different verses used to get kind of people in the mood, but I've never heard this one. So I just want to paint a picture for you. This is Acts chapter 16, verse 25. We pick up Paul and Silas. They are in prison. And it says this, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now, I do not presume that we can open prison doors with the power of our singing, but I think that it is possible. I think that it happens in our hearts, in our minds. It happens in relationships. It happens in the church. Church, we are commanded to sing. Wherever you are, stand up to your feet, take a deep breath, and sing loudly. We're going to sing. Here we go.
There's a grace when the heart is under fire Another way when the walls are closing in And when I look at the space between Where I used to be and this reckoning I know I will never be alone There was another in the fire Standing next to me There was another in the walls Holding back the seas And should I ever need reminding Of how I've been set free There is a cross that bears the
Thank you, Chad and Erica. Man, well, 2020 just keeps on coming. Now we're dealing with air quality issues. And man, I thought it'd be nice to just take a second and just spend some time praying uh, to the Lord. So would you bow with me? Dear Father, um, Lord, what a, uh, what a time to be alive. Um, Lord, we just thank you that you are in control, that you're still really good. Um, Lord, we give you over... Um, we give you we give you over our lives again this week. We give you uh, the here and the now. Uh, we come to your throne, acknowledge who you are. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd uh, calm and ease those that are even uh, more on edge uh, this week as we're just continuing to figure out how to deal with 2020. Um, Lord, we love you. Um, we're excited to be together online and excited to spend some time in your word. Uh, we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, hey, church. Uh, happy football Sunday to you. Uh, I was actually wondering if, man, if some people out there have been praying for smoke or something to get churches closed so they could sit on their couches and watch football today. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe that's you. Uh, well, hopefully you are having a wonderful, wonderful week and excited for another great week here online. Uh, I'm Josh. I have a couple of announcements for you. Let's get to them. First of all, if there's anything that we can be praying for you for, go ahead and text prayer request to 97,000, and we'd love to pray for you this week. Awana is starting up, Lord willing, this upcoming Tuesday. Uh, September 15th, go ahead and get registered online on the church website. That would be awesome so that we can plan according for this upcoming week. Also, this upcoming Monday, we have our Conejo Valley meal program. And uh, we have drop-off from 4 to 4.30. So if you're interested in volunteering for that, go ahead and get registered for that as well. Ladies and gentlemen, we have our women's and men's one-day retreats coming up. The women are having theirs on Saturday, September 26th here on the ABF campus, and the gentlemen are here on October 17th. So go ahead and mark your calendars, get registered. We'd love to see you guys out for that. Finally, another way that we can be praying for our community during the craziness of this season is uh, we are going to be heading over to Agora High School. Uh, all of the local Conejo Valley churches are getting together for a time to just pray for the community. So on September 26th, that's a Saturday morning at 8 a.m., we're heading over to Agora High. We're going to meet over there and pray for our community. We'd love to have you out for some sweet prayer time. Finally, just wanted to say thank you for your generous giving. This past week was an amazing week. It's fun to catch up a little bit in the budget. And uh, just looking forward to a sweet uh, fall ahead. Uh, ways that you can give online, uh, on the church app, or mail in a check. We're so thankful for your giving. We love you guys. Have an awesome, awesome week. Well, thanks, Josh. Uh, it is, as he said, just good to be together, still having the opportunity to at least connect online. And I uh, want to invite you to turn with me. We're in John chapter 2 uh, in today's text, just working our way through the, the book of John, a beautiful uh, account from Jesus's very best friend, uh, sharing details that really the majority in this book aren't found in any of the other gospels. And so hopefully you've been encouraged and blessed uh, by it thus far. Now, you notice maybe uh, on the title screen uh, that this is called Undercover Boss, and that was a, 
a fun show. Maybe you got a chance to see that. Uh, it was pretty popular a number of years back. And here's the, the whole premise of it. It's fairly simple. As a boss of a company or organization would pretend to be like any other employee and kind of go behind the scenes and try to sneak in and try to fit in with the group without them recognizing uh, who the, he or she uh, was in the scenario. And typically, they would, in that whole encounter behind the scenes, either uncover someone that was a, really a star, somebody that was doing a, a great job uh, behind the scenes, or it would expose just the opposite. It would expose somebody that was misusing time or resources. And uh, finally, it would all build towards the end of the show where there'd be some kind of a, a big reveal where they would show and reveal that there's the boss behind the scenes and people would either be kind of in a, a place of embarrassment or shame, or it would be a time of, of honor. So either regret or honor was kind of two things. And so that's what the whole thing built towards. And I, I heard a pastor, uh, another pastor this week make note of that, that this passage that we're diving in today is actually the very first episode of Undercover Boss. Because if you think about it, this is Jesus himself. He's showing up at the temple to see what's happening, what's going on. And he looks just like any other peasant. He's dressed as a man. And he sees the complete misuse and abuse of what's happening in his father's house. And things, let me just say, get a little bit intense. So not necessarily the, the fun, cheery story like last week uh, with the, the wedding, but instead you're seeing the other side of Jesus's character. And so remember, this is uh, John, his very best friend, giving the account. So I'm confident that there's something in this section of scripture uh, for each one of us. Let me just pray briefly before we dive in. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity just to continue to study your word as crazy as the world seems to get. I love that there's a constance in your word, what you've said, you've written down, you've given us direction and uh, leading for our, our life. I pray that we'd be able to put distractions on the shelf, that we'd be able to enter in and really engage in this time, God. We invite that. We invite for your Holy Spirit to be active and moving as only you can. We invite that now in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So starting in chapter two, we're in verse 13. And uh, this is kind of the, the beginning of him uh, going out to the masses. It says in uh, verse 13, it says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. We'll start with just that little bit of an intro just to kind of set the stage for where we're at. And here's the idea is the Passover, if you're not familiar with it, was a beautiful annual celebration that they had that was intended to remind the Jews about God's rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, how their sons were passed over by the death angel when they put the blood sacrifice on their doorsteps and that as they were instructed by God. Here, Mosaic law required that all able-bodied men within 15 miles of Jerusalem made this annual trip to Jerusalem 
to be there for Passover. So it was more than just an expectation. It was even in the Mosaic law. And so at this time of the year, when you talk about going public, this is there's around one to two million people as estimated were in Jerusalem, which isn't that huge of a city. So it would have been jam-packed with people. As part of their worship, each family was required to bring with them an unblemished ox or lamb uh, for sacrifice. And if they were a poor family, then they could sacrifice a pigeon instead. Basically, this reminded them that sin must be dealt with through sacrifice. It was also this expectation. It was also preparing them for the Lamb of God that would ultimately take away the sins of the world. You see, all of this whole sacrificial system was building, building, building towards the coming Christ. So that's what's happening here. And it was an expectation when they thought of what sacrifice they were going to make. It was an expectation that they would bring an unblemished animal or unblemished lamb or ox, or as we said, pigeon there. Basically, the idea of the very best of their herd. It wasn't intended to be the, the leftover or the sick or the runt of the litter. It was an expectation that they would take what was first, what was best as something to sacrifice Here's the thing that's an important thing to understand about the worship of our God is that in the Bible, worship and sacrifice are often used interchangeably. They're expected for that. If if there's no sacrifice, then there was no worship. See, God doesn't want the leftovers. He wants the very best of what we have to offer. For a lot of years, I was a young adult slash college uh, pastor. And it was always interesting because the different rooms that they would give you in these large churches that you'd meet in were usually kind of the, the leftover or the scrap rooms for sure. And it was interesting. I don't know what provoked this, but for some reason, college ministries always became the drop-off for old couches. I don't know if student ministry people can resonate with this, but I'd have people being like, hey, any interest in this? I know it's pea-soaked, and I know it has cat hair on it, and I know it's got a lot of stains and a few cushions missing, but here it's my donation to the church. I so often wanted to say, you know what, just keep your own junk at home, this idea. And here is the same idea that God was very clear that he didn't want the leftovers. Still the same today. God doesn't want the, the very end of it. A lot of people are like, man, I don't know how I'm able to give this month. At the end of the month, there's nothing left. And you hear the key part of that statement at the end, always throughout scripture, sacrifice was intended to be the very first fruits. And so what God established, what God had put in place was a healthy accountability to begin with, that they'd run things through the filter. The religious leaders would determine if something was a blemished or unblemished sacrifice. It was was a means to hold people up. They wanted to be like, hey, let's take this seriously. Let's take this uh, into account whether I'm bringing the first and the best. But unfortunately, over time, and we don't know where that turn happened, unfortunately, this form of healthy accountability became a shady business practice. So the religious leaders needed to verify that the animals were unblemished but they turned that into a practice of money-making. Basically what would happen here, and I think I've explained this in other sermons, basically people would would bring with them their ox or their, their lamb, and often the ones kind of scrutinizing or deciding whether or not they were pure would decide, you know, that whatever they brought was gonna be, they would find something wrong with it. 
but they would offer to for sale pre-screened clean animals that they would be able to buy at an inflated price. There was really no uh, no governance to stop this from happening. And so then on the other side of that, I was reading this week, they would then buy the person's uh, unacceptable uh, lamb or oxen at a discounted rate and most likely would slip that into the herd of the good stuff a little bit later. So people were stuck with no other options. It made me feel like mealtime at LAX or Disney. You really, you're stuck. There, there's nothing you can do. You're, you're spending the money one way or the other. I'm still a little bitter over a $90 Burger King family lunch a couple years ago at LAX. But here's the idea, is that they were using this to pad their pockets. The, the religious leaders were misusing temple funds. Historian, uh, Jewish historian Josephus says that during Passover, there would be over a quarter million animals sacrificed in the Passover. So imagine this. This wasn't just a a little racket that they had. This was a a major scheme, a major money-making thing that they had in place there. If that weren't bad enough, the second thing where you hear hear the term money changers, the reason that expression is used is they had a, a temple tax that was expected above and beyond a person's tithe And it was intended to be brought during the Passover and given. It was equal to maybe a few days' wages. But here's what they did with that. They they polluted that donation as well. They said, you know what? We can't accept donations if it's coins that have government leaders' pictures on it. So basically all the foreigners, anybody with Roman coins, they had to convert their dirty money for money that was acceptable for donation. And the people, the money changers would give this new acceptable uh, currency with a major or terrible conversion rate and they'd find something to do with the dirty money that wasn't usable somewhere else. So basically it was like Chuck E. Cheese in that day and age. You had to turn it in. In order to play, you had to turn in your money for some kind of a fake token. But here's the, the misuse of resources on display. And here's the sad part of all this is transpiring. The location in the temple was called the court of the Gentiles. Basically, this was the only area where Gentiles could possibly enter and learn about who the true and living God is. So this whole area that they had converted into a money-making scheme was the one area that God had intended for outreach. So man, strike one, strike two, strike three, all three of these were demonstrating uh, irritants to Jesus Christ that you see now in verse 15, he had had enough. He couldn't tolerate this as the undercover boss. Verse 15, and making a whip of cords, imagine that Jesus, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Last week, it was kind of fun for us to spend a little time looking at the story of Jesus turning 120 plus gallons of water into wine. You got to see a little side of Jesus's compassion. 
But you might remember in John's very beginning introduction, what did he say that Jesus demonstrated perfectly was what? Grace and truth. So we got a little glimpse of the grace last week. Now we're getting a little extra dose of the truth. Last time, a, a miracle of compassion. This time, a demonstration of righteous anger. You see, here's the reality though, whether we realize it or not, we want, we need a God who gets angry about things that are unjust and unpure. You don't want a God that's indifferent and just lets things play out as they're going to. We want and need a God that intervenes. We need something that rings the bell in our life that says, you can't do this. You can't continue going down that road. Kind of think of it in car terms, and that's what I think a lot of things in. Kind of the, the, the lights that blink on your car when you're going the wrong, when you're, when you're doing the wrong thing, when the car's about to break down, when it needs oil, when it needs, when the brakes are going out, and the, the check engine light is the absolute worst. I always joke with Adrian, if they could make everything as reliable as the check engine light, you'd have a car that would last forever. That's the one thing that never seems to break. But that's the picture here is this. This is the check engine light. This is serious. He's coming in there with a whip and setting things straight. What does he confront them on? You see it there in the text. It says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. It's intended to be a place of worship, a place where sin could be brought to light and address the study of his word. All of these things, now they're corrupting the intent of God's house. I think about that and you want to personalize some of this stuff. How does that happen today? Because if we're not careful, we can look at all of this and look back and be like, man, they were terrible people and not do any kind of heart check. I jotted down a, a few things I observe of how we can uh, misuse or how we can uh, misdirect our worship. First thing I jotted down, you can maybe see that in your notes, is we end up teaching or preaching the wrong gospel, the wrong gospel shying away from the mention of sin or eternal consequence of hell for rejecting the provision of Jesus Christ. It's one of the popular things today to try to push that out and just focus more on the good life that Jesus offers you. Focusing solely on Jesus' love with no mention of his justice or this idea of easy beliefism. Maybe you've heard that expression before that expects really no life change. You believe you're in. There's no expectation of transformation in the life of a believer. The wrong gospel. This last week, I was watching a prominent pastor being interviewed by Oprah, and he was unwilling to take a stand that Jesus is the only way for a relationship with God. It broke my heart that I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Jesus says it himself. I'm, I'm the only way. There's not other options as a route to God. So wrong gospel is one trend I see present day. Another one is wrong focus. One of the major trends happening in churches present day is allowing, and this is a hot topic I know, but allowing politics to sneak into the pulpit. How much did Jesus give attention to politics while he was here? Did he give the, the attention of that? Or did he speak about a different kingdom? Did he push people's hope to something outside of the realms of our current situation? 
I feel convicted to leave that outside of the church. Now, do I have an opinion on it? If you ask any of these guys, I have plenty to say and plenty of thoughts, but I don't bring it into the church services. But if you wanted to wait till after the filming of this, you'll probably hear us sitting around talking about some of those things. So for us as a church body, our, con our conviction and leadership is that politics, as important as they may be, should not sneak their way into what's preached from the pulpit. But do I believe absolutely that you need to be educated, that you need to follow your conscience, that you need to get out and vote, that you need to follow your convictions, all of that, absolutely. But wrong focus can get us off track. The other wrong focus that I observe so often is people going the topical route all the time rather than being rooted in teaching God's word. It breaks my heart. If someone doesn't end up in this church longer term, that's my one charge for you. Your first question to ask a church is, do they teach from God's word? That's where the power is at for our lives. So wrong gospel, wrong focus, and wrong motives. Wrong motives is a tough one because it's hard to assess somebody's mo motives, but let me at least push a little bit on this one. The idea of becoming a consumeristic church where you see that what's happening in the churches as a product that's being provided. You're the customer and the church provides the goods. This is missing the point completely of God's design. And for that, I would suggest that he would be pulling out the whip as well. That's one of my concerns when I think about starting these online habits, to be honest with you. I understand for many, it's a health decision, especially for our at-risk folks, but I'm concerned when it's done because it's more comfortable or more easy, where you receive, but you don't roll up your sleeves and participate, not using your spiritual gifts to, and to, for the good of the body, not encouraging others in their walk, no accountability, not serving the community, not interacting with those that are wrestling through their faith, Man, just checking the obligation box, all of those things are cautions for you to start moving towards consumeristic religion. These are what some of the things that I would think all three of them can corrupt God's intent for his church. In this instance, Jesus showed his messianic authority by coming in there. And some would argue, are you something there happened supernatural? Because I don't know how a single man with one whip is able to move everybody out that's there. If you think about it, it should have only been able to take one large guy to wrap him up and end this whole thing. But instead, he moves people out and changes the course, at least for the moment there in the temple. I like, and I think it's important for us to catch his uh, reference there. He referred to God as my father. You have to understand that this kind of uh, talk was not common there, not uh, ever done, done by other Jews. He's me it's mentioned later in the book. I found this interesting in John 5, 18, just a few chapters from now. It says this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, referring to Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It's important for us to catch that. Some of the statements that he's making are big deal statements. Do you see that there? Making himself equal with God. 
All of this, as we mentioned last week, is building the faith of his, of his disciples. Whoa, we're, we're on to something here. Here they refer to the Psalm 69.9, referring to his consuming zeal for the temple. Continue and see how the people responded in verse 18. It says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples, again, connecting the dots, remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, the people are asking for a, sign or a demonstration for his authority to disrupt this whole business that they had established. Notice though in the text, there's none of them that are debating whether or not what they're doing is shady. They clearly understand that. So they're not, they're not saying, hey, there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. They all know in their heart of hearts, the route that they had taken it. What they're doing instead is asking for who has the authority to confront our sin. That's a wonderful question. Who has the authority to confront our sin? The one that has authority above all to confront our sin is Jesus himself. And when Jesus responds, they have no idea what he's talking about. What does he say? He says, you know what? If you destroy this temple, we see there in the text, he's referring to himself. If you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. What's he doing there? He's prophesying his own death and exactly how things are going to play out. Pretty awesome. All of these things, remember John is making a, a case for the deity of Jesus Christ. So even in this moment, he's prophesying his own death. The idea here is this, it's more than just a prophecy though. It's an announcement of a new temple that's coming. Jesus eliminates the need for this temple that they're all gathering in. Jesus is saying, I'm the temple now. If you want access to God, you have to go through me. It's the reason the curtain tore upon his death. Now his response says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Ooh, pretty intense little ending there of this section's brief but profound implications regarding what is true saving faith. He talks about the miracles. So they ask for signs and just because he didn't do it in that moment doesn't mean that he's not doing the miraculous. Here it's unspecified miracles that cause people to do what? It says to believe in his name. But here's the interesting to see in that section there. This was shallow, superficial faith wasn't saving faith. This is evidenced by Jesus' lack of faith in there. there. Basically, there is no evidence that they had a, an awareness of their sin and recognized Jesus as the source of their rescue. It was mere intellectual assent, which doesn't really mean anything. James 2.19 tells us that even the demons have such faith as that. In Jesus' parable, as in Matthew 19, as he talks about the, the seed and the sower, what does he teach us about false conversions there? 
He gives the example of those who first receive the gospel with joy, but fall away due to affliction in the weeds of this world. Jesus knew the true state of each person's heart, and these were fans, not followers. That's an important distinction. I recently uh, reread this book uh, by Kyle Eidelman. If you're looking for a good book to read, it's called Not a Fan, uh, a powerful uh, description of this idea of being a fan or being a, a follower. Webster defines a fan as an enthusiastic admirer. Nothing's required of them. Basically, as, as Josh mentioned of a, a football fan, they sit in the stands and they're fully content just cheering on the people on the field. That's the idea. Fans often confuse their admiration for devotion, but here's the important thing to understand the distinction between the two is that the fan is stays in the stands, the follower gets off and gets down on the field. If you read through the gospels, you'll find the words believe in me five times and follow me about 20 times. Both are part of saving faith. To truly believe is to follow. Likewise, the same idea, if I, if I claim that, that Josh was the lead, we'll stick with Josh. If Josh was the, the leader of my life and you didn't see me doing anything, Josh kind of likes that idea. If Josh was the leader of my life and you didn't see me doing anything to investigate, what does Josh want me to do today? Where does Josh want me to go? How does he want me to respond? Then you'd have to say, you don't really believe that Josh is the leader of your life, which is true. Uh, you don't really believe that. That's an inaccurate statement. So here the idea, Jesus saw straight through kind of the whole facade of a, hey, excited to see all the things you're doing, but not really willing to follow. Not really willing to follow. Actions aren't what save us, but our faith is demonstrated in our actions. Jesus is looking for followers, not fans. He's not looking for an admiration. There's plenty of that out there, but instead he's looking for people that will lay down their life and choose to follow. So my question for us, just as we wrap up, if this is undercover boss, what grade do you think the boss would give us? What grade? I would say pretty low. I would say they didn't perform very highly. Kind of an embarrassing thing when Jesus reveals who he actually is later on. But here's the amazing thing and why Jesus as our boss is the hero of the story. Rather than rubbing their nose in it, continuing to shame them, rather than do that, what does he do? He absorbs the penalty for their misuse of his father's house himself. I'm gonna take that weight. I'm gonna carry that burden. I'm gonna provide the way back. I'm going to provide the rescue. I love that every single section of scripture we come upon, he continues to be the hero. I pray that that's true for you even this week. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, again, amazing section of scripture that paints a picture of what you expect. Not the abuse of, of your house, not the, the misuse, but uh, prioritizing. And I'll tell you what, God, as I was studying that this week, I was reminded of how serious you take the gathering of your people, your worship, the elevating of, of sacrifice, or the link between sacrifice and worship. 
God, I pray that you'd grow each one of us in this area. And we thank you for the grace that's extended where you ring the alarm, but then you come and follow up the truth with amazing grace. We praise you for that in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.
All right, church family. Well, again, a blessing to be together in any way we can serve you this week. My hope and prayer for you is that you really wrestle through that question that's presented here. Am I a fan or am I a follower? God bless you. Have an amazing week.